everybody, welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. And we're the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right, we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are. Uh, we are, we are. Oh, no, I already did that. I can't you did that, that joke again. already. I know, I did that joke recently too. Just another day at the old Classic Gaming Brothers. Just I another was... manic Sunday. Yeah, I was uh, spending some time earlier today going through our fan mail. We got a couple of letters from National Grid. They like our podcast a lot. <laughs> oh they, nice yeah they like it so much that some of their letters come in pink envelopes Ooh! but then they they were soliciting for donations or something so i shredded those anyway seth what have you been recently playing uh so recently i've been playing a game called ministry of broadcast which was released january 30th of 2020 i picked it up on the steam summer sale which is going on until the 7th of july which is always a great place to spend your money so i i went through and i built up my shop shopping list of games that I wanted. Actually, so what I did was I went through my wish list and I picked out games that I wanted to actually buy and I made a list of them. Then, once I got to a certain threshold, I deleted games that I really didn't feel like I wanted immediately, and thus brought it down to a more reasonable amount of money to spend. That makes sense. I ended up getting, like, I think six games for, like, 60 bucks. So, Ministry of Broadcast was one of those games, and Ministry of Broadcast is a cinematic platform puzzler, which... A cinematic platformer is like Prince of Persia, like the original Prince of Persia, where your character runs and may not necessarily run uh, and jump fluidly, or at least tight. Like the controls aren't usually tight with cinematic platformers. Right. And that stays true to Ministry of Broadcast. The controls aren't super tight. Ministry of Broadcast, though, takes place... It's it's like if you took Prince of Persia and instead of setting it during the time of Prince of Persia, you set it in some dystopia mix of Orwell's 1984 and a modern reality television show. And your character has family members who are over this wall. And in order to get to your family members, you need to compete in a game show and win. Where And, and you go through these various different arenas where there's platforming and puzzles to be solved. The fun part is it's got like this um, stylized kind of 8-bit graphics. And it starts off where you're you're getting transported in by a truck and there's a guy just like shoveling the snow in this like compound that you're going to and the truck just runs over them and then they park at the gate and you get out and and they're like no you're you're volunteering for this position it's not prison now go to your camp like your go to your bunk and stay there until the morning where you have to go to do these arenas where they're very dangerous as you can die pretty easily it's kind of like prince of persia where if you fall from a significant amount of height you just immediately die the game though does have it's it's done through a view screen of like you're watching from like a camera and you're mm -hmm. able to rewind anytime you fail a puzzle and it will automatically also rewind you if you die but if you go somewhere and you're like ah, i really didn't want to go there but you're still alive you can rewind and you can go back a little bit okay so yeah it's a pretty it's a pretty fun game i uh i recommend it it was developed by the ministry of broadcast studios and it was published by hitsense and playism there's actually an ad for level designer within the game it says we need level designers send your application to this website but it's very like blended into the background of the game right yeah that's cool 
hopefully someone saw that and helps them. What about you? What have you been recently been playing? Well, recently I've been playing Sonic Origins, which uh, came out in 2022. It actually came out on June 22nd, I believe, of 2022. And it is a new game from Sega, which looks to celebrate Sonic's 30th anniversary, which was actually, I think, last year. But this is a uh, remaster of the four Sonic games released on the Sega Genesis slash Sega CD. So it's a remaster of Sonic 1, Sonic CD, Sonic 2, Sonic 3, and Knuckles that have been reworked in 16 by 9 high definition with, I think, supposedly 60 frames per second, but I've heard people have had issues with this game which i'll talk a little bit about the versions of sonic 1 cd and sonic 2 are actually based on mobile ports that were created by christian whitehead who worked on sonic mania so he developed these mobile ports for sega a long time ago and they've been out on mobile platforms for a very long time and he reworked them to um, work in this collection as well as be functional on a ps4 ps5 Uh, sonic 3 and knuckles is an entirely new remaster which is developed by a team at a company called Headcanon, which also worked on Sonic Mania. Sonic 3 and Knuckles uh, is probably the most problematic out of all of the games, unfortunately. So Sonic 1, CD, and Sonic 2 play really fine. They, like, I had zero issues with them. Uh, Once I got to Sonic 3 and Knuckles is where I started to have some issues. The first issue is something that we all kind of knew about, us being Sonic fans, and that is the music from three of the levels of Sonic 3 was scrapped and replaced with with music that was considered kind of like beta music. And the reason being was that uh, Sonic 3's music was worked on by Michael Jackson and his estate still owns the rights to some of those songs. So instead of working out a licensing deal, which could be very complicated and costly, Sega opted to reuse music that they had previously made for Sonic 3 prior to Michael Jackson's involvement. And they reworked these beta tracks with the help of Jun Senui, who has worked with Sega uh, on prior Sonic titles. So it's someone familiar with Sonic music working on these remastered tracks. Too mixed effect. Some of them don't sound great, but I think a lot of it is also just I have a lot of nostalgia for Sonic 3's music and hearing different music in place of what I'm used to is hard. It's just... It, it doesn't feel right. And it's just something I have to get used to if I want to enjoy myself playing this collection. I will note there has been a lot of reports of bugs. I personally haven't encountered a lot of them. I've encountered some, but I'm like 90% sure the bugs were in the original games that I encountered. Right, so then they're not bugs. They're just um, staying true to the source material. And none of them have been game-breaking. Um, I will say that out of all of the games, like I mentioned, Sonic 3 seems to have the most issues. And this likely is due to the fact that apparently Simon Thormley, who works at Headcanon, uh, reported through a Twitter thread that he and his team were put under a lot of crunch. And um, he asked Sega multiple times for a delay on the game. And they refused and um, ultimately it came down to the fact that the project that they submitted to Sega was not their best work Uh, and he admits that and he says you know what we sent to Sega and what they ended up using that was not our best work sort of deal so whether or not Sega will work with him on potentially resolving some of these issues if this is a thing that Sega really wants to take to heart ultimately though Sega is going to 
to cash a check at the end of the day. So whether or not they care about, you know, going back and fixing some of these issues, that's a whole other question. I don't think they're going to like replace the music again. They already worked with Jun Sunue to make this new music. And while people have complained about it, it's a preference thing. I mean, some people like it, some people don't. The bugs is a different issue. If a bug makes a game virtually unplayable for some people, that's something that should be addressed. And again, I haven't encountered game breaking bugs, but I know people who have. So um, it's, it's something that hopefully they can touch on. Whether or not I think the game is worth buying in its current like state, I have the PS4 version. I don't know if that's going to run better than other versions. So I would suggest getting the PS4 version or PS5 version. Reportedly, the PC and the Switch versions are the currently the most buggy, at least. The PC version has some issues with Denuvo, which is a DRM that Sega likes to include in things. And the Switch version has some performance issues. Um, so that's something you're going to want to consider if, if you do want to pick up this collection if you're a Sonic fan. That's my very short review for my recently played. But if you get it for the Switch, you could play a Sonic game on Nintendo. Yes, yes, you could. And that's always a weird feeling. Um, I mean, it's kind of weird playing a Sonic game on a PlayStation, uh, <laughs> you know, using like a PlayStation controller, especially because my PlayStation has a, a theme currently set where every time it opens, like every time I turn on my PS4, it does the PS1 boot up sound because um, I downloaded like the anniversary theme. So like I listen to like this nostalgic PlayStation 1 boot up and then I immediately play Sega games. <laughs> I mean, you could probably get Sega games to work on a PlayStation 1. Oh, you probably could. It Definitely is not legal, but you probably could. Well, today we're talking about um, a, a PC game, not necessarily a um, game that I personally have familiarity with, though I do own the game, but it's a game I think Seth has familiarity with. Yeah. And that game is Grim Fandango. I, uh, I've i played Grim Fandango in the past, and I I actually own the original and I own the remastered version. And I'm pretty sure I have a copy of Grim Fandango on a CDR because I believe that was my original version. But I've since bought the game twice so they can pound sand if they're going to come after me. I picked up Grim Fandango originally because I was I would read a lot of adventure gamers and I still go to read adventure gamers reviews. I think they're they're a pretty solid review site and they've kind of maintained their integrity uh, over the course of the years. And there was a period of time in my life where I wanted to play only five-star adventure games like i was like yeah i'm gonna play five star maybe four star but primarily five-star adventure games um and at that point in time that's where i played the longest journey i started playing into the broken sword series i i played a wide breadth of adventure games including grim fandango and i was always interested in grim fandango when it came out because it was very unique for its time but when it came out i wasn't into adventure games. I didn't really get into adventure games until I was a little older and could actually really appreciate the time that people spent into these stories. I, I think in the when Grim Fandango came out, I was more concerned about playing on the N64. And we'll find out if other people were more concerned about playing on the N64 later as well. However, I did play it. I really enjoyed it. And unfortunately, to this day, I have yet to beat it because I ran into a, a game-breaking bug. And in a portion of the game, I actually got stuck in this elevator towards the end of the game. And uh, I was frustrated there was no earlier save and because they don't have a Grim Fandango doesn't have an autosave feature and neither does the remastered version so be forewarned if you play the game there's no autosave feature so you have to manually save and I sometimes either have really good 
good saving habits or really bad saving habits. And at the time that I got stuck in the elevator, I had really bad saving habits and decided that it was not worth my effort to try and get past this point. And that's when I closed the game forever. I did buy the remastered version and I played through the beginning, but I ended up not being able to stick to it. But thinking about the game and how we're going to talk about it today, it's probably going to give me some little bit of inspiration to try and play through it and beat it. And I will let everybody know if I get to it and beat it, I will I will bring it up and say I have beaten it. I will only, this is my promise, making a classic Gaming Brothers promise. I will only talk about Grim Fandango as my recently played if I beat it. So that's my promise in stone. That's a classic Gaming Brothers promise. So Zach, you were like two when it came out or something like that. Yeah, it came out in 95, right? 98. So I was uh five do you remember any of the material about it when it came out when you were five (laughs) i do not no i remember later in life seeing stuff about grim fandango even before i think the remaster i remember i think seeing it on store shelves uh when our father would take us to buck a book or um big lots was another place that used to have a lot of boxed pc games for a period of time and they used to have a little spinning carousel section of boxed pc games that were like heavily discounted because a lot of them were older at the time and uh, I think I remember seeing like Grim Fandango. I remember Manny, the main character, his his face. Very distinct. He's based on a Mexican Calca figure and a lot of the characters are, which is a traditional figure found in Day of the Dead. But to get into the history of Grim Fandango, really, if you are to go onto Google and look up what PC games deserve a sequel, you'll likely stumble across a lot of very clickbaity lists. And on those lists, they'll have games that are rumored to have sequels, uh, such as Bully, which does have a current rumor that Bully will be getting a sequel. You'll also see games that will likely not get a sequel anytime soon, or if they do, it will be a very long time down the road, uh, such as Grim Fandango. Grim Fandango was released in 1998 on October 30th, which was actually just the Friday, right? before Day of the Dead, which is on November 1st. And this was most likely deliberate because Day of the Dead is a motif found in Grim Fandango. As I mentioned, the characters are based on Calica figures, which are a folklore figure found in Mexican folklore for Day of the Dead. They are these skeletal figures, often ornate with um, decorations and stuff on them, or sometimes dressed in various uh, clothing and stuff like that. Now, we wouldn't have gotten Grim Fandango without Tim Schafer. Tim Schafer previously worked on prior projects at LucasArts before he would go on to work on projects like Grim Fandango and Full Throttle, which were really his personal projects that he got to lead. Previously, he worked on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the NES version of Maniac Mansion, and of course, The Secret of Monkey Island and Monkey Island 2, LeChuck's Revenge. Schaefer is actually credited as being one of the main writers for Secret of Monkey Island. It's reported that he did about two-thirds of the dialogue in that game. Tim also co-designed with Dave Grossman Day of the Tentacle, which was the sequel to Maniac Mansion. Though after he's he worked on Day of the Tentacle, Secret of Monkey Island, uh, Maniac Mansion, Indiana Jones the Last Crusade, Tim was ready to go out on his own and take lead as the a creative designer for a video game. So he thought up of an idea for an adventure game that would be a noir style adventure game. In general, noir story storytelling. Right and wrong is not always clearly defined, and the protagonists of the stories are usually 
tragically flawed. That's what kind of sets up a noir style of any type of novel or video game or any type of that's kind of like what defines the noir genre. After Day of the Tentacle, Schaefer presented his Grim Fandango idea. He also had an idea about having a motorcycle video game called Full Throttle, which he thought of after Grim Fandango, and he pitched that to LucasArts as well. And LucasArts decided Full Throttle was the game that was going to get the budget. Ultimately, LucasArts felt that Full Throttle would be more of a mainstream title. And when Full Throttle was released in 1995, it would go on to sell over a million units and become one of the first LucasArts adventures to reach this milestone of a million units, which is pretty impressive and also goes to show you that the executives at LucasArts Games knew what they were thinking about when they picked Full Throttle. We will find out later when we talk about how Grim Fandango did for sales. Development of Grim Fandango would begin shortly after Full Throttle was released. However, Grim Fandango did spend some time in development. Now, Full Throttle was made in the Scum Engine, which was originally made for Maniac Mansion. In fact, Full Throttle, Day of the Tentacle, Maniac Mansion, Secret of Monkey Island, Monkey Island 2, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, all were in the Scum Engine. They got their money's worth out of that Scum Engine. And as we were leading into 1998 and Grim Fandango was being developed, LucasArts was really growing concerned that the graphic adventure genre was dying out, so they allowed them to develop their own engine for Grimm, and they were hoping that Grim Fandango would be the saving grace for adventure games. So they gave uh, Tim Schafer $3 million to work on Grim Fandango. So with the strong budget, Tim Schafer and his team developed the, the new game engine, and they created the Grim E engine. And this was actually based on the Sith engine that was previously used by Jedi Knight Dark Forces 2. I want a mod that just replaces Kyle Katarn with Manny and gives Manny a lightsaber. That yes. There's probably it's probably out there already. Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, the Grim E engine and a lot of Grim Fandango was built in the language of Lua. Lua is a high-level programming language that was designed originally in 1993 for software applications. Grim Fandango Fandango's programmer, Brett Mogilevsky, was interested in the language and decided to use it for Grim Fandango. So not only would Grim Fandango end up being one of the first games developed in Lua, it also really set the uh, standard for games that would later be built in Lua. Titles like Escape from Monkey Island and later Baldur's Gate. So without Grim Fandango, we likely would never have gotten Baldur's Gate. Now the Grim E engine was considerably more complex than Scum. As we mentioned, it's based on an engine used for a Star Wars game that you play a Jedi in. The game that they were building to use this new engine um, was able to mix static pre-rendered backgrounds with 3D objects and characters, and the main character, Manny Calavera, would end up being comprised of 250 polygons in total, and there were more than 50 characters in-game. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah, there's a lot of characters, and they are really complex for this time. The game's overall design, a mix of 1930s art deco with Aztec and Mexican belief systems, planted in a film noir setting largely stemmed from Schaefer having an interest not only in folklore but also having taken an anthropology course. It was in this time he learned about the Aztec underworld in the concept of the four-year journey. The Aztecs believed that for some individuals, such as those who have succumbed to illness or old age, death consisted of traveling through nine levels in Mictlan, the underworld. This process would take four years and is and often was filled with struggle and stress 
strife. After these four years, they would be received by the god of death. At this point, the soul, after this journey, would be able to rest. He thought the idea of the belief in the four-year journey of the soul in the afterlife would provide a good place setting for an adventure game. His interest in these cultural depictions of death helped inform the design of the characters. While toying with this idea, he eventually came up with the idea of Manny, when he realized it would be fun to play as the Grim Reaper. He had to read how in some cultures the dead were buried with two bags of gold to be used in the afterlife. One bag was placed on their chest and another hidden in their coffin. The idea was that if the spirits stole one of the bags, the departed would still have the hidden one. And from here, he had devised the idea of making the afterlife have a crime-ridden noir-style world. I like that, where it's this concept of, like, you're going to the afterlife, so you need money because you need money in the afterlife, and uh, you have to hide some of your money because ghosts are thieves and they will steal your money. <laughs> now, Grim Fandango is an adventure game where one must go on an adventure. This adventure stars Manuel Manny Calavera, a travel agent for the Department of Death in the city of El Mero. Uh, a lot of bone puns in this game by the yeah, way yeah. <laughs> this, this whole game is mostly bone puns he is forced into his job to pay off debt and is ultimately very frustrated with how things are for him it's then that manny meets mercedes Michie colomar a client for his co-worker domino hurley that he ends up stealing from domino so that he can work with mercedes mercedes or Michie is assigned to the four-year journey through the department of death but manny is convinced that she should be guaranteed an express trip due to the pureness of her heart. Because in Manny's line of work, some people are sent on the four-year journey and other people are given a ticket to ride a train straight to the end so that they can live in peace and not have to go through the struggle of getting there. Manny does a little investigating and learns that Domino and their boss, Don Copal, have been rigging the system and sending a majority of clients on the four-year journey. This scheme is all being orchestrated by the boss of the criminal underworld, Hector Le Mans, who sells the first-class tickets at an inflated price to the rich. Thus, they send more people who are less fortunate, who don't have enough money, who weren't given enough money by their families and passing, straight on the four-year journey, and anyone who can pay for it gets a nice good trip to the final destination. Manny decides it's now his mission to help Mecha. He travels to a small port city and waits for her because he gets there before she does and ends up waiting a year. During this time, he actually becomes the owner of a nightclub because he needs something to do in this port city. And from there, the story goes on uh, as Manny begins encountering various other individuals and other characters on his path to initially save Mecha from this journey, but then accompanying her. So as the player, you must guide Manny through his adventure which consist of solving puzzles, interacting and collecting objects, and you can also talk to various characters through a conversation tree, and like in other LucasArts games, you can't die, uh, which makes a lot of sense because Manny is already dead. There's actually something I wanted to bring up that is a little off script. There does exist the puzzle document, and I don't know if Zach actually is aware of the puzzle document for Grim Fandango. Tim Schafer, Peter Tuscal, Eric Inger Ingerson, Brett Moglewski, and Peter Chan all put together the puzzle document 
which was the document of how the entire game was presented to the LucasArts to be able to say, like, here's the game concept. It's 74 pages long. And at the beginning of the document, it says, like, Grim Fandango puzzle document. And then there's a picture of, like, Manny, and he's, like, standing on the edge of a of a skyscraper overlooking some cityscape. And at the very bottom, it says, This report, by its very length, defends itself against the risk of being read by Winston Churchill. <laughs> but it breaks out every single character. So it has, like, each of the years are broken out in chapters. And then there is descriptions of the characters. There's how the puzzles are structured. And it also has the flow charts on how the puzzles, how they teach people that there's more options than just the same option. I haven't read through the document because it's actually just reading through the game, but one of the early pictures is talking about the year one puzzle structure. And it talks about like the first reap that uh, Manny has to go through, how to steal a reap, and then you get to different tasks. And it starts off and says these three puzzles are going to be easy and they're designed to be completed linear. And then the next three puzzles are also going to be a little, they're going to be a little harder, but they're still designed to be completed linearly. Uh-huh. And then it's going to start breaking into non-linearity where you can go a couple of different ways and it breaks out into even more groupings of being non-linear. So you can actually solve and get to the end of the story multiple different paths which was very very unique in the time of grim fandango right having that non-linearity be presented throughout the game especially for an adventure game a lot of adventure games especially at this time were all a lot of inventory combination find this combine this and you get to this puzzle and the puzzle that's how you would solve it and it was a lot of sometimes people would say it's like pixel searching and stuff like that because you're trying to find the right pixels to click on grim fandango allowed you to have some level of control on how you are going to be actually being able to solve those puzzles and it's so it's kind of cool in that way where you can kind of go down your own little path and you could almost really say that the game is almost replayable to see those different parts even though that the story ultimately is going to be the, the same story i think it's good that it doesn't rely on like pixel clicking because they're like dark seed which is a supposed to be a very good game reportedly has an ending where if you forget to grab a paperclip you won't get the good ending of the game the oh, paperclip yeah. is literally represented by two dots on the screen <laughs> or or i mean you can even talk about how you can get stuck in gabriel knight because you can't remember to grab the maple syrup packet to put on the t- piece of tape to then get the cat to rub up against it grim fandango says you could go that route as one of your solutions however you could also figure out some other complex way to to solve it. So some people arguably say that Grim Fandango, because of the design of the game, breaking from the Scum Engine, being one of the first kind of 3D adventure games, having this really intrinsic story, non-linearity with when it comes to the puzzle solving, a really complex cast of characters. People say that it's one of the best adventure games that's out there. And it, it was critically received, has won multiple, multiple awards. I think it's got like 10 awards or something to it, at least. It's definitely won the Aggies at one point in time, which is yeah. the Adventure Games Reviewers Rewards, um, which is a high praise indeed. How did it sell? Not good at all. According to the Chief Operating Officer, 
publisher, Justin Bailey, they sold just over 500,000 copies of the game by 2012. They released in 1998. Most of the copies were sold in 1998 with 58,617 copies being sold and the remaining balance of the 500,000 being sold over the following 13 years. Now, if you take that and you can compare it with another adventure game, say a more modern adventure game, uh, such as the Telltale Walking Dead series, that series sold 2.8 million copies per episode within the first two seasons alone, which would be 10 episodes. So that's 28 million copies that Telltale Walking Dead sold. Now, mind you, there was a, you know, strong intellectual property built up around The Walking Dead. I guess as even uh, another example, look at Full Throttle. It sold a million copies on release, and that was only a few years before Grim Fandango came out. Right. And you can look at in another game, 1998, Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, sold 7.6 million copies worldwide. But was it a commercial failure? So normally we would say, yes, it was a commercial failure. However, LucasArts didn't really think that it was a commercial failure. And to be honest, if LucasArts doesn't think it was a commercial failure... Was it really a commercial failure? It's like a, if a tree falls down in the forest. Right. If the people making the game don't think it failed, it di- didn't really fail. In fact, LucasArts set realistic goals for the game. They already knew this was a Hail Mary. Mm-hmm. Like, they gave Tim Schafer a bunch of money because they said, Schaefer, work your magic, Hail Mary this game, make the best adventure game that you could make, and he did. He made a damn good adventure game. However, earlier, when Full Throttle came out, it sold better, and LucasArts thinks that maybe people just like motorcycles more than being a bureaucrat of death. However, by uh, 2000, they actually were profitable. So after two years of sales, uh, Grim Fandango made back its $3 million budget. And so those remaining years was all profit to LucasArts. So at the end of the day, Grim Fandango wasn't a flop. It wasn't a, a home run, as it were. But if you noticed, around this time, there was something that happened in the industry. The big adventure game producers, LucasArts and Sierra, stopped making adventure games because of Grim Fandango. LucasArts saw that Grim Fandango didn't really do well, so they knew the market has already left the adventure gaming. And Sierra saw that Grim Fandango didn't sell well, and they said, we're not going to do that. Like, why would we make another adventure game if it's not selling well? And in fact, LucasArts came out 2006 and they said, we're going to hold off on any more adventure games until the next decade. But in 2013, Disney bought them and LucasArts really isn't a thing. I guess it still somewhat exists, but it's completely a Disney video game company now. And it's very much a a changed world. Could Grim Fandango come back? Because adventure gaming has come back a bit more since the late 90s for sure. Well, in terms of the legacy, whether or not it will come back, uh, Grim Fandango, as Seth had mentioned, is a good game. It has been remembered uh, as a 2005 article in The Guardian put it as the last genuine classic to come from LucasArts. And while other games have since followed, none captured the soul that Grim Fandango had and that it left on the market. I mean, from what I have heard, even games that have are in the adventure series that have followed like the those by telltale just don't fill the void that grim fandango left and people obviously wanted to play grim fandango still so 
it was remastered. Uh, a remaster was released in 2015 and released for Windows, PS4, PlayStation Vita, OS X, and Linux. And a Switch port was released in 2018. And an Xbox One port came out as late as 2020. There were also mobile ports for both iOS and Android. So you could play Grim Fandango on the go. Now, reportedly, Schaefer is interested in a sequel. Uh, though he admits that the story would be difficult to write and would probably be the hardest component of the game. Because the first game, without spoiling anything, is a very final game in terms of the characters and their story. He would really need to develop a story and give a reason for any of the characters he wants to return to return. Though he has also played with the idea of developing a new character. And one of his ideas was also setting a potential sequel to Grim Fandango in an open world with uh, a comparison, I guess, being made to Grand Theft Auto, which I think would be wild. <laughs> Imagine Grand Theft Auto, but you're running around as a, a skeleton, like in a 1930s Art Deco world. That's the game I want to play. Yeah, for sure. Now, we're going to get into our Retro Rewind segment. Quick reminder, I don't want to do this reminder every time we do this episode, this segment, but uh, uh, Seth and I provided each other with two classic games, um, and we're going to talk about those games and whether or not they hold up. So I gave Seth a game, Seth gave me a game, we both played those games, and now we're going to tell you about those games. And uh, Seth, do you want to go first? Sure. <laughs> so Zach gave me a game called X-Men Ravages of Apocalypse. And if you're thinking to yourself, man, I like X-Men games, but I've never heard about that game, you are missing nothing. You're living a life of wonder. Yes. And I'm in fact just mentioning this game, bringing down the quality of your life just by a little bit. So X-Men Ravages of the Apocalypse is a mod to the original game of Quake and was released in 1997 and was developed by Zero Gravity Entertainment. It's not very good, and I'll talk about why it's not very good in just a moment. However, it should be noted that it is one of the first total conversion mods ever really done with a property like the X-Men. Mm -hmm. There were other total conversion mods out there and there were other total conversion mods done for other games, but X-Men Ravages the Apocalypse was one that was done with a known property at the time. Done with a known property and officially licensed with this property because there's like the Simpsons total conversion for Doom, but that's not approved by Fox. Correct. Like this this mod was, was licensed by Marvel and they sold it. The conversion mod had uh, 14 levels, all new weapons and enemies. That still does not make the game that great. I personally do not feel that it has held up. This is due for a number of reasons. First, the weapons were, in my belief, horribly designed and underpowered and the enemies are overpowered you also have to hit the enemies precisely they all have very small hitboxes so you are shooting an underpowered slow weapon at a very small target while the enemy is blasting you with multiple weapons without a cooldown. So picture this. You're equipped with this slow shooting single shot rifle and you go into a room with four Cyclopses. Oh, let me say that all the enemies are X-Men, but they're like X-Men clone robots or something. So there's four Cyclopses and they can all shoot their laser blast out of their eyes without any downtime. Guess what you're gonna do? You're gonna die. And this room with the four Cyclopses is the third room in the level, the first level. You fight a Psylocke who charges you, you kill her, then you go and you go up the stairs and you fight another Psylocke, and then you enter the room with the four Cyclopses, and that's as far as I got, because there was no 
like real health pickups that I could find. Yeah. Uh, I tried flipping to different ammo and stuff like that. I was using like a flamethrower. None of it. I could kill anybody with any speed. And they all had like, I don't know, more than my hit points. So I'm going to say if you love the X-Men, play something else. This is a solid pass. And uh, if you love Quake and you're looking for more content for Quake, either play more quake just by itself or you can grab scourge of armagon or dissolution of eternity i would recommend those over x-men ravages of apocalypse so yeah does x-men ravages the apocalypse hold up no well hey we can't all have winners right the game that seth gave me is gunstar heroes which is a lot different than ravages of the of apocalypse because i think the difference is that i had a good time uh, gunstar heroes was released in 1993 by a company called treasure for the sega genesis it's a run and gun game which um so far i've done two running gun games i think uh the other being uh mega turkin and then i also did no i so i've done three running gun games because i no. did Duel Master is not a run and gun game, and Turk Mega Turkin's only a left and right shooter. That's still it's still considered a run and gun game. I know, yeah, I know. Duel Master is decidedly not a running. No, gun no, game. no. Duel Master is a punchy punch game. Gunstar Heroes is a run and gun game. It's very chaotic. Uh, the entire game is set from a side scrolling perspective, where you just nonstop are blasting things. You also have the ability in the game to mix weapon types, so you can combine, let's say, for example, homing bullets with flame to make homing flame bullets. Uh, you could combine the flame with a laser to make a consistently persistent laser that kind of looks like a lightsaber but makes a lot of noise it's a very fun game and uh it actually kind of reminds me of jewel master despite it not being the same type of game as jewel master mostly because of the ability to combine weapons so in jewel master you could do that where if you combine certain rings on certain hands you could get certain abilities in gunstar heroes you can combine certain weapon types to create create a new weapon type um, which makes me think that seth really likes run and gun games and also games where you can combine abilities so far he has given me three games two are run and gun games and two you can combine abilities to be fair gunstar heroes and mega turrican are masterpieces i really like gunstar heroes uh, i do think that the hectic gameplay can be a bit annoying however i will likely play it again again doesn't mean i'm good at it but i will likely play it again at some point and i think it would be a game that people who like shooters who like running guns uh would want to pick up and by running gun i mean like think of contra that it's it's like contra but uh yeah gunstar heroes does it hold up yes absolutely well that's gonna be our grim fandango episode so uh if you wanted to reach out to us and talk about your memories playing grim fandango you can always send us an email at classic gaming brothers at gmail.com you can nice. also follow us on our socials we are on facebook instagram twitch and twitter our facebook instagram and twitch are all at classic gaming brothers and our twitter is cg brothers pod which makes us really sound like like a, an NPR show right there. Mm. You know, like this was brought to you by CG Brothers Pod. WB International. <laughs> and viewers like you. Thank you. And uh, if you want to listen to more of this show, uh, either continue doing what you did to find this one or listen to any other listening app, we should be on most of them. So I think I got everything. Zach, am I missing anything? Don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Zach. And I've been Seth. And we've been the Classic Gaming Brothers. Uh... That's right. right.